0: Thanks, guys, and good morning, everybody. Welcome to Hiawatha. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, it is great to be back. Aletha and I were in Tennessee for a couple of weeks, a couple of Sundays, actually, yeah, about two weeks or so. I missed two Sundays as well, uh, visiting her family and getting to go to a conference in Nashville with one of our networks, Acts 29, which was really great um, as well. Maybe more on that uh, in a future future Sunday, but really good to be back. We always really miss being here, uh, especially when it's two weeks in a row plus. Sometimes it's three uh, in July, but um, really miss being here with you guys. So it's super good uh, to be to be back, and also to see the Bruins, which I don't know where they uh, went. Oh, you guys are still there. Okay, didn't uh, leave on us. That's good. <laughs> you got a thing afterwards, so you better yeah stick around. But so good to see uh, see you guys and have you back. Um, I, and a lot of you are new. Probably probably most of you. I was thinking as, as you guys said that three years it's been. Probably most of you are new in in, in three years. If not if not most, maybe close to majority. So um. I hope you can stick around for lunch and meet them and hear a bit about what God's doing in Berlin and other side of the world and um, just to meet some people that are near and dear to our hearts and um, was probably for sure was uh, one of the hardest goodbyes we've ever had to make as a church and so the hello is sweet again uh, but um, but it's all for the sake of the mission right it's uh, we're ascending church we're actually going to send another a group of people out from our church in a couple of weeks, on August 27, to start a new church elsewhere in Minneapolis. A lot of you guys know about that. Uh, we're going to uh, plant our third church in four years, which is uh, not something we're really trying to do. We always want to plant churches. We didn't expect that type of speed to happen, but it was very God-given and circumstantial, and uh, we probably can't keep it up, but we're grateful for another church plant, too. But um, all that to say, we're going to send again. It's for the sake of the mission. It's hard to say goodbye, but the reality is uh, Romans 10, I think 17, says faith comes from hearing people have to hear the good news they have to hear about a god who came to their rescue uh, or it's impossible to be saved uh, because without hearing about that good news we can't put faith in it and depend on god to save and so that's uh, what that's what we're doing uh, It's what the de bruins are doing what we're doing and sending what we do here in the city what our church is all about and why we plant churches here too so uh, but again more on more on that uh, uh, later so um, We are uh, in, uh, I think a lot of you know, but if you don't, we are in uh, summer mode. Sometimes we call it here uh, as as a church. Sometimes we're in series throughout the summer, but a lot of times we do miscellaneous sermons and all of our elders get a chance usually to preach at least once uh, as as well. And one thing I want to do uh, with uh, my choice for preaching is to preach through a few psalms. And so we did Psalm 23 a few weeks ago and we're going to do Psalm 24 today. And then um, we've already done Psalm 25, so we'll do that next week. But um, we'll jump around, um, or like Peter said, uh, Psalms on Shuffle should be the, the series, which that's, that was his, I thought it was kind of cool. Uh, so we'll kind of jump around a little bit. Um, but um, so a little crash course on the, the Psalms, if, if you're new to the, uh, the Psalms, which kind of means songs basically. Uh, it is a, uh, one of five what we call wisdom books in the Old Testament, a collection of what are essentially prophetic songs. So it's so a few weeks ago too, but if you missed that week or you're new to our church, Uh, They're essentially prophetic songs written between 1400 B.C. and 1000 B.C. by multiple authors, but primarily by an ancient Middle Eastern Jewish king named David. And uh, so, remember, we say prophetic songs because, one, they're songs, and two, they, like all Old Testament literature, point beyond themselves prophetically to Jesus Christ, whether through uh, David's kind of direct words or his experiences as a psalmist, as a suffering king, writing about one who had come in his line to suffer even more than David, this time for salvific reasons or or for our sins. Uh, But this is a great thing on on the Psalms, uh, not my words, but uh, Gerald H. Wilson says about the Psalms, in the Christian New Testament, so later in the book, no book, no Old Testament book is cited more often as a warrant for understanding the life of Jesus and other New Testament theology than the book of Psalms. It's really important for us to understand about a book that we can tend to read ourselves more into than we probably should. We can do that some, but we tend to start there sometimes. And that's okay to be drawn to the book if you feel like the psalmist writes about an experience that you're sharing. That's okay. Uh, We are in it. David was a real guy who really suffered. We're real people who really suffer, and we cry out to God in distress. But it's more about Christ. And when the New Testament then, when we read the Bible on the Bible's terms... We approach the Psalms and say, How does the New Testament read the book? How do they interpret David's experiences? When we ask that question, then what Gerald Wilson's saying here is then we have to then uh, kind of apply those rules ourselves and see Christ and his experiences in them as if they were, these were prophecies just through poetry and prophetic uh, song. So today then we're going to look at Psalm 24. It's one of my favorite Psalms. Aletha and I actually have a part of Psalm 24 hanging up in our house the first verse, which I'll read here in just a second. But it's a great psalm to read or to take someone through if you or a friend is new to the faith or new to the Bible or new to the biblical story in general because basically what we get in the psalm is the whole Bible story in about 10 verses or what we call the creation-fall-redemption paradigm. God makes everything, human beings fall away and can't get to him, so he comes to them to save them from their sins. That's the whole Bible in like a sentence. Psalm 24, in, in poetic form. So in a way that, that it, not verbatim, elsewhere in the Bible, you don't see it this, written this exact way elsewhere, but it complements everything that's said elsewhere in terms of how it uh, plays a small little role in helping tell that greater story of, uh, of the Bible and of redemption. So as I read the psalm, we're going to have it on screen here. Turn to your Bibles if you want, or to your phones, that'd be great, but this will be on screen if you want to follow along there. As I read, uh, look for that creation, fall, redemption, that that Jesus paradigm, and then we'll come back and talk a bit more about it. All right, so Psalm 24, verse 0, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your hands, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory, Selah. Okay, so what I want to do, and I uh, mentioned this before, is go through this psalm with the idea of creation, fall and redemption as, uh, as the paradigm in that order. And so let's start with verse one. So I mentioned verse zero before identifies uh, the author who is King David. We'll start with verse um, verse one here, which is really this all-encompassing, staggering, very countercultural claim, which says, "The earth is the Lord's." And the fullness thereof. So everything in the earth and the earth itself is God's property. It's his possession. He made it and it belongs to him. It's a possessive idea. The whole earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So everything in it. And it's a staggering claim. There's so much to say about that. So many extrapolations we could make about it. But there's one thing I want to focus on today. And that is that Christians aren't, because of this verse and this idea that's just plastered throughout the whole of the scriptures, Christians aren't or shouldn't be dualists. What I mean by that is we don't believe that God is king of the spiritual realm alone, but that he is God of the earth. Our God is the God of the earth and the heavens, but not the expense of the earth. The whole earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's the God of the physical realm as well. None of it existed beforehand until he spoke it into existence. There was no pre-existing primordial soup along the side of God where God said, I can work with this. I can make something out of this. Nothing existed except God in his eternal perfection. And then he spoke matter into existence. But here's the key as well, another related idea. Not just that God made things, but none of matter, none of the physical, would stay existing without his constant upkeep and intend to hold it all together as well. So Colossians 1 says in the New Testament in verse 17, "In Jesus, all things hold together." So not just that in Christ all things were made that's another part of Colossians 1, but in Christ, all things kind of maintain their being. All things hold together. We maintain our humanness, and trees maintain their treeness. Because God continues to make them trees and hold them together as trees. We don't just fall apart. God is the order giver. He's in that way, that very much way, involved in creation. So it's actually interesting when you look at how the New Testament quotes this verse. It actually uses it in 1 Corinthians 10. I'll read this in a second. But it uses this first verse in context with encouraging Christians to eat whatever they want because all foods are to be received as a gift from him. So 1 Corinthians 10, 25, and 26 says, this is where it's the one time it's quoted in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul. He says, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For, and here's the quote, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So, In context here, there's a lot going on we can't talk about today for the sake of time, but but he's writing to a first century Christian church in Corinth. It's this Greco-Roman port city. And he's writing to this church there, and there's disagreement in the church about if they can eat this meat that was formerly sacrificed in a demonic sacrifice. So there's this meat used in in a pagan sacrifice. It was then sold in the meat market for just anybody to go and buy, kind of leftovers. And Christians disagreed. Can we eat that or not? Is it stained? Should we abstain from it, or can we eat it? And part of Paul's argument, it's very nuanced. If you know the whole argument, you know, I know it's nuanced. I'm not forgetting that. So, you know, there's layers to this. But one of the big responses he gives is, yes, you can eat it. It belongs to God. It doesn't matter if it was used in demon sacrifice. Even though it was used in a sacrifice to demons, eat it. Don't hesitate because it belongs to God. Everything belongs to him. So go and eat and partake. And then it actually takes it one step further in 1 Timothy 4 1 and 3. The same author, just different book. He's writing to Timothy, a, a disciple of his, a, an associate. He says, The teachings of demons are such. The teachings of demons are such. The teaching of demons require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. So he actually calls it demonic teaching, the idea that we should abstain from foods as a part of our religion, that God actually created and owns to be received with thanksgiving and to enjoy, that's actually a demonic teaching that was kind of circling in the church and seeping in, and Paul's writing to address this to one of his pastor friends, one of his disciples, Timothy, to go and so teach into the churches that he was over. Now, to be clear, Christians are called to abstain from lots of things, right? I hope that's obvious. If it's not, I should just say that. Christians are called to abstain from a lot of things and to reject certain things. But Psalm 24 is evoked here in 1 Corinthians 10 as a basis for understanding the Christian acceptance of food and related other good created things that might be rejected by other religious people. And so sometimes then as Christians who are following this, who are reading this, who are celebrating this, who are keeping this with our spiritualities in our churches and as individuals, sometimes we will seem too liberal to other Christians who know less or to other religions who are seeking to save themselves by starving themselves. So let me say that again. Sometimes we'll seem too liberal with how much we accept Sometimes we'll seem too liberal to other Christians who know less about these things. Or to other religions who are seeking to save themselves from their sins by centering abstinence from foods uh, in their ways of working out their faith. Starving themselves to save themselves. But Christians receive food and other good created things like they receive the saviour. So think about it that way. As Christians, we, what we at the center of our faith is the idea of receiving what God has to give. Ultimately, His Son. God says, "I'm giving you my Son, who's going to die on a cross for your sins. Receive Him, and you'll become a, you'll become adopted into my family. You'll we'll become one of my sons and daughters." From First John or from John 1:12. So receiving is at the center of the faith, and then so related to that, secondarily, kind of underneath it, but related to it, pointing to it, is this idea that Christians will receive. All good created things as from him. He owns it. So we're going to be receivers of all kinds of food and not make a certain kind of fattish diet the center of, of our faith. And not even make fasting the center of our faith. There's times to do that, but fasting is not the center of the Christian faith. Jesus is. And he calls himself bread. You know, so Jesus doesn't say, I'm the center of the faith. Abstain from food. He says, I'm the center of the faith. Eat my body and drink my blood. So eating is at the center of the faith, not, not abstaining but again, as, as it goes, uh, that will seem very liberal to some, too liberal to people who are, are too conservative. So there's that uh, issue with Psalm 24, that or implication, I should say, for Psalm 24.1. But also past that, I think we can go beyond it, beyond simply saying the earth belongs to God and these are good gifts to receive to say. The earth tells us something about God as well. Uh, if, if you know Van Gogh's uh, famous self-portrait and uh, how it tells us a bit about his inner turmoil, like that, the, the artistry of the earth can tell us a bit about the great artist behind it. The creation can tell us something about the, the creator. Uh, George Swinnick, an early Puritan, talks about this principle as something that Jesus does in his ministry. We actually just sang about that too with the idea of the sparrow. Looking at something created to extrapolate a theological idea from it. Jesus is a master at this. He says, if God is doing this over here with this physical thing, how much more in the spiritual way will he do it? So if you're worried about your life, look at the sparrow. And kind of in this sage-like way, Jesus makes a lesson out of it and teaches theology, a characteristic about God from it. And so George Swinnick, one of the early Puritans, said, Jesus taught us to read him in his creatures. Read Jesus in creation, because it belongs to him. See, if we're dualistic and we separate physical and spiritual, we can't do that. If God made the physical realm but withdraws from it and isn't intimately involved in it, we can't do that. We won't naturally do it as much or even want to do it. But if God is always intimately involved with his creatures, with his seasons, with his mountains and seas, and especially people, which we'll come to in a second, with food, then we can see a glimpse of his grace in it, an an image of of himself. And so that's, that's that's an important qualifier too. You know, when we see a tree, for example, a Christian should see a bit of God in it. Not though as a pantheist or an earth worshiper would, as though the tree was God himself, but as a Christian with a full understanding of creation, as though God made it and as though we might see a reflection of him somehow and his grace in it as the true artist. So one question I was thinking this week is, what if we believe that God doesn't just own what's said inside a church, but he also owns the sandwich we're going to eat for lunch afterwards? What if we live that way? What if we read that God was gentle with sinners when he died for our sins, but then got a divine glimpse of that when he felt this snowflake gently fall on our skin. From the starting point that God created the snow, God created that moment of the snow falling on my skin. He wanted me to learn something about himself with gentleness there. And that's hard for me to say because if you know something about me, it's hard for me to see snow as a gift from God. So uh, that's a challenge for me. But, um, but what if we did that? What if we were trained in that? What if we were equipped to do it? What if we did it more? Not to replace the cross as the ultimate form of revelation because the best way we can see God and what he's like is to look at Jesus Christ. Because Jesus says, if you want to see the Father, you want to see God, look at me. Jesus' words. I and the Father are one. And the best way to understand what he's up to in the world, what he's like, is we look to that bloody cross and say, that's how much he loved me. But what if we secondarily and intentionally said, God is the God of the earth. He owns everything, the fullness thereof. So every moment's a gift from him. Every moment of a raindrop falling on our face. Every drink of a cold glass of water after a long run and how good that tastes. What if that can tell us something about him as well? On a secondary but still intentional intentional level. And especially with people, and I want to shift us a little bit here within this first idea of creation, because you see the psalm do this. It doesn't just say the earth is the Lord's. It says we are the Lord's. So the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And then it says all those who dwell therein. So it gets specific, not with animals, not with angels. though Those are implied, especially animals being physical creatures. But people, people are put in focus. All those who dwell, all the people who dwell within the earth belong to God. And and I'm speaking very broadly here as well, not just about Christians, uh, but about all of us, whether we're Christians or not, because God says we're made in his image. All human beings, this says, all human beings belong to God. Every time you see a human being, your friends and your enemies and everything in between, you should think that person belongs to God. God made them. If that doesn't diffuse a problem, at least in part, between you and that person, I don't know what will. It really is helpful. You should look at them and say that they belong, just like I do, they belong to to God. And caringly so. God intended you and I to exist. He he loves what he made, the the Bible says at the very beginning. He loves what he made. He he declares it good. So he caringly made us. He didn't just kind of all of a sudden fall asleep and some power seeped out from him and all of a sudden, whoa, there's people. Now what am I going to do? But he, he intended to make everything that he made and there's order to it. And he especially made people as the pinnacle of his creation. You and I are more important to him than mountains and sparrows. That, that's the whole point of Jesus' argument. If we weren't, why does Jesus lower sparrows and say, well, if he does this for the lower, how much for the greater and the higher? His argument makes no sense otherwise. Jesus is saying, if the sparrow, how much more for you? And then Jesus says, you are more valuable to God than the sparrows. So it's a, it's a primary, secondary thing. But with, with human beings in mind, and I like how the psalm progresses to that, the whole earth is God's, but especially those who, who dwell therein. But I, I, I think this, this gives us identity But you know, I think that the idea we are—you know—you are you are not your own. I'm not my own. This is what this is saying. You and I don't—we don't own ourselves, and we especially say this as Christians. uh, But you can start even as you know Christians in the room. You can probably sense this too. But if you're not, maybe even more so, start to feel some dissonance here, right between that idea that we are not our own. We don't belong to ourselves, and with what the world tells us. So when I said before countercultural. Just that simple statement, the earth belongs to God, is one of the most countercultural things we can say, I think, today, in in today's culture. It does not belong to us, and then it moves on. We don't belong to ourselves. It's not our life. So, dissonance with the idea of be yourself, dissonance with the idea of be what you want, or in the words of the, the famous theologian Bon Jovi, it's my life, you know, or just pick your pop song. I mean, you know, songs about um, taking back your life, you know. It's my fight song or whatever it is. Uh, it's, it's rampant. It's everywhere. It's not Christian theology. It's not your life. It's not my life. We belong to God. We're God's possession. It's actually really good news. You know, and as a Christian, you, you probably know this. Or if it's a sweet reminder, then great. It's a good reminder for me. If you're not yet, uh, this, this will probably be extremely offensive, but I hope extremely joy-giving at the same time. And if you're feeling the rub there, it's a good rub. It's a good tension to feel. It's a good burn. That, that's the gospel. We, we can't do anything to save ourselves. God does everything. In the same way, we're, we don't belong to ourselves. It's not our life, and we're not saved by creating something out of our life circumstances, climbing the ladder, but by God coming to get us. So the dissonance there is really important to understand and it leads us to this next piece. So with creation talked about, touched on a little bit, we moved to this next question which, which can seem out of place if we just thought this is going to be a psalm about the earth. We're, we're kind of caught off guard here, I think in a good way. It's not just about the earth. It's about more. And so a question's posed. This is the next section which I'm going to call uh, the fall section or the sin section or the idea of, of law which I'll, I'll mention in a second. But the idea of falling away from God. So a, a question's posed. And this, is, this is where it really uh, gets, gets good. It's already been good, but this is where it gets good. And, and note that, that this is written here about God and us from a fallen world perspective. It, it, it assumes distance between us and God, this, this next section, right? Who will ascend the hill of the Lord? Meaning God's on the hill and I'm not. So it, it assumes distance. We're, we're not where he is, whereas in the beginning of the book we used to be, human beings used to be, seeing him face to face, holding his hand, talking to him, walking with him in the cool of the day. Genesis 1 and 2 is described um, as Adam and Eve having that experience. And so this psalm, though, assumes distance between us and God. Otherwise, why talk about ascending to God at all? And so part of the idea behind the earth as the Lord's is a very high and mighty view of God. The earth isn't ours. We didn't make it with a word like He did, and we we've, we've fallen to a place beneath Him in our sin and rebellion against Him. Whereas, again, in the beginning, it wasn't like that. So the related question then is, who shall ascend God's hill, or who shall get to Him? Who shall stand in His holy place? So see that holy place is is important there. Who shall ascend to the place of holiness and perfection? Who shall be with Him in His temple? Who shall be with Him in heaven? The immediate answer after, I'm just going to paraphrase this. You can read it again. I'm going to paraphrase this. Basically, what he's saying is, those with clean hands, a pure heart, humility, and truthfulness. Those with a pure heart, clean hands, humility, and truthfulness. There are two things we should think about when seeing a a list of things like that in, in the Bible. One, those are good things to pursue, for sure. Great things to pursue. If, if you see those char- characteristics in your life, thank God because they're there because of him, because you belong to him. And he holds you together and creates good works in you. If you see it in someone else, copy it. Being a truth speaker, being humble, having clean hands, a pure heart, those are those are great things. That, that's That's first. But second, the second thought is, I'll speak for myself here, I haven't done that list a thousand times over in my life. And now, as a Christian, I haven't done that this morning that well. Even now, as a believer, I'll ask you guys does that list describe you perfectly? Clean hands, uh, pure heart, humility, and truthfulness. Does that describe you perfectly? That's who gets up to God. That's the qualifications, the characteristics, the descriptions of the characteristics of the person who can ascend the hill of the Lord. Add to this the idea that in Psalm 24, 6, it says, this is the generation of those who seek God, and Romans 3, which says, no one seeks God, and we're really up a creek. Those who ascend the hill of the Lord are those who seek Him. And no one seeks Him. Those who ascend the hill of the Lord are the generation of those, this is the characteristic of those, are those who are seeking God. But the Bible says elsewhere, no one truly seeks Him. See the dissonance? The Bible helps us here. It's helping us interpret. This is bad news so far. We're getting to the good news. But we've got to get there first before, before the good. Those with pure hearts get up, but all have them pure hearts. See, the, the, the problem with a list of characteristics like this is we tend to think about the present and the future, but not the past with them. So, in other words, we might think this list is a possible future for us, that it's descriptive of a realistic future for me. And I can assure you, moralistically, on your own strength, it's not, but in Christ. It kind of is. We'll talk about that later. But moralistically, for all of us, it's not possible. But hypothetically, even if it was, what about the 10,000 times you and I haven't lived this way in the past? What about our stained track record? That is the problem with moralism. It doesn't address the past. As much as you might think it addresses the present and the future, moralism never can wipe away something you've already done. So no matter how much you're doing those things, how much you're pursuing humility, thinking you're seeking God, how much you think you have clean hands in the present, how much you're striving for in the future, it doesn't deal moralism with the past. And so the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and dwell with him? And, And here's an important qualifier. Who shall receive blessing from him? No one. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? A faithful reader of the psalm with Romans 3's help. Who's actually seeking? Who will ascend the hill? No one. But the psalm doesn't end there. We keep reading. The third section is redemption. This is the solution. Let me read this again. Verse 7 Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So one thing I want to make sure you're seeing is this poetic progression. Look at the whole psalm, where it starts and where it continues and where it goes. It starts with, uh, or in the middle especially, God creates, but then this question, who will ascend the hill of the Lord? And then we get this idea, the reader's kind of looking at his stained hands and heart in sadness. And even the word selah here is transliterated selah. We don't know what it means. That's why it's just translated Selah. A lot of people think it means Pause and if it does it helps with this idea it almost like it's like the that david is inviting a moment of pause you know we think about the question who will get to god this is the qualifications sadness as we look at our stained hands and prideful hearts and unwillingness to truly seek after him pause and think about that then read verse 7 then he says look the king of glory he's going up he's climbing the hill Open the gates quick. He's entering for us. He's going in ahead. You know, th- this reminded me of uh, Revelation 5, 2 and 5, where you, uh, you actually see this is, a, this is an apocalypse, so it's pretty heavily symbolic, but basically the, the apostle John is getting a vision of heaven. And John says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So another question. And then it continues, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. But look at how it ends. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the ultimate psalmist, Jesus Christ, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. See the similarity of feel between Psalm 24 and that? Here's the good news. Like Jesus had authority in this vision to open the scroll, so does he and he alone have the authority to ascend the hill of the Lord. You know, as, as John here is weeping because no one can open the scroll. So, so as we read Psalm 24 and David as the psalmist is saying, no one can ascend the hill. The question is, who's going to get there? No one can get there. Oh, but look, the King of Glory is going up. See how it ends? Part of the good news of Psalm 24, you guys, is we're not at the end. We're not at the end of the psalm. Our failures or our successes, we're just left out. For at the beginning God made us and we're in the middle. We've failed and we've sinned but we're not at the end because God's last word to you and me is, is Christ and Him crucified. His last word is I'm going to save you. His last word is I'm going to go up. I'm going I'm to solve the problem of human beings' failure to ascend to God on my own as the King of glory. That's good news. And so the psalm ends that way. But... Before Christ ascends, he descends to die on the cross for our sins. He's raised three days later. And then as Christians, we talk about this day of ascension. He truly ascends to the right hand of God as Father. His ascension is important because as a human being, Christ became human, he actually did ascend. He went up to where God was. As a perfect human being and as the Son of God, as our advocate and mediator, he actually did literally ascend and so the good news is if you have faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins you will ascend as well kind of in his wake sort of like behind a boat as it plows through the water and you're kind of in the wake of it Christ is the boat and we're kind of pulled along in the wake in the spin of water behind what Christ does for us um, through his grace Romans 10 6 to 9 Uh, In context, before verse 6, the Apostle Paul is saying there's two kinds of righteousness. A righteousness that comes from law and one that comes from faith. He says, the righteousness or salvation or perfection that comes from law says, do this and you'll be saved. Do these laws and then you will be saved. That's what the righteousness based on law says. But then he contrasts it. Note the big conjunction contrasting conjunction in verse 6 but he says the righteousness based on faith says do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven that is to bring Christ down or who will descend into the abyss that is to bring Christ up from the dead but what does it say the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart that is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Look what that first verse says, though, verse 6. Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend to heaven? Do not say, Who will ascend? Do you see how that helps us read Psalm 24? Psalm 24 says, Who will ascend? Who will ascend? And Romans 10 says, don't ask that question about your own heart. That's not the gospel. Don't ask that question about you. See, so with with Romans 10 in mind, if we ask the question of Psalm 24 about ourselves, we're not reading it the right way. We're not reading it the way Romans 10 wants us to. It's not about us. It's about Christ. Do not ask the question of Psalm 24 about yourself. As though you can do it. Ask it about yourself as though you can't do it. Because Romans 10 is saying if we do that, when we we ask that question of ascension, what can be wrapped up in that is, or what happened is we can deny the fact that Jesus had to descend, die, and ascend from death and then to God himself for us. It's not about going up. It's about Christ coming down. That's why he has these parentheticals here. He says, if we ask the question about ascension for us, we deny that Christ came down to get us and to save us. Or if we ask, well, we can go deep into the things of God, well, that is denied that Christ came up from those deep things himself. He went down to hell for us and came up to save us. He experienced it for us and came up from, from death and Hades. We, we can deny that. If we, if we ask ourselves about going deep, Christ went deep into the things of salvation. He died. So those parentheticals help us here. you know, Paul's saying, don't ask the question of movement. Stay where you are. The words near to you. Christ has come close to us. He became human to speak love and truth and to die on a cross for our sins. So that the end of the paragraph is then true. If you confess, simply confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, same word in Psalm 24. Who's this King of Glory? The Lord jesus jesus is the king of glory jesus is lord and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved it doesn't say if you ascend you will be saved guys it's such good news do you believe this or ask this question how are you living contrary to that how do you tend to believe the opposite in what way are you seeking to ascend or to descend When you read Psalms like Psalm 24, do you read yourself into it? Do you think that, yeah, you're actually able to have a pure enough heart? It's actually about you. It's not about you and me. Jesus is the purest, the humblest, the perfect, the Son of God, the ascender. And he did it for us. So it's not based on moralistic ascension or religious effort. Religious effort. So as we close this, a couple things. We ask this question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? We ascend when we realize we can't ascend. But that Jesus has descended, died, and then ascended for us. You ascend the hill of the Lord. In other words, you're saved. You get close to God when you stop trying to ascend so much. And, you know, you believe that he bled and he died for you. You and I ascend when we humble ourselves in light of that great and glorious gospel. So Psalm 24 is a problem for people who think they're good because it ends, because there are things like Romans 3 in there too, which we talked about, which are conflicting, but it ends with the king of glory, not us but it's really good news for people who have lied, who have not been true speakers, who have not sought after God, who have not been humble, who have had in any way you wanted to find the word in pure hands. Psalm 24 is gospel truth, written by David about the second David who was coming a thousand years later, his eventual son, Jesus Christ. And so when we when we know that, when we believe that God's pursued us in this way, when He's fought all of our battles, we can confess and believe. Uh, you know, it's. I I think that when we when we talk about as Christians, sometimes we talk about pursuing God, um, seeking after Him. It's fine to talk about that sometimes, but only after God first seeks us. We can think about our days as like seeking after truth or seeking after God, but not before we, we believe he's first sought after us in this capacity. And then after this, this is really, there's really no imperative in the psalm, no command. Uh, but but the end, you know, the psalmist is pointing to Jesus, the eventual Christ who fulfills the idea and he's worshiping. And so that's the second and uh, final thing I want to talk about here is get into a rhythm of worship in your life. The Christian life is... The epitome of it, at least one big aspect, is when we say to each other and to ourselves, the king of glory is fighting our battles. Do you guys remember? Have you in any way forgotten? How are you working that out in your life? Are you trying to fight your own? We say that to ourselves, to our, our kids, our spouses, our friends, our community groups, our church. Uh, that's one big aspect of what the Christian life is all about. And we pose the question, who is this king of glory again? And we answer each other and ourselves, whether it's explicit or implicit, whether it's in word especially or the second best thing in deed form. That can't happen without community. And so, so ask yourself that question, how am I in the rhythm of worshiping with other people, myself but also with other people Basically asking, whether it's, again, verbatim or not, the point is asking the question with words and deeds, who is this king of glory again? It's Jesus, who's fighting all of my battles on that cross. All of them. He destroyed all of my sins, past, present, and future. Moralism will never help you. It will always leave you to fear. Because moralism ends after verse 6 in Psalm 24. There's no king of glory in moralism. It just says, who will ascend the hill of the Lord? Those people that are basically perfect and who are good. End of psalm. But That's not how the psalm ends. It progresses to redemption. And so the whole Bible tells a story. It's, it's a long book, but that's the whole thing. And then Psalm 24 is a microcosm of the, that greater story. The whole earth is the Lord's and all of us. We've all fallen away. That the King of glory is coming to ascend to God for us. And if you believe... You will be saved. That's all you have to do today. And a lot of you, some of you, maybe a lot of you, aren't Christians yet. If that's the case, then the invitation of the Bible through the lens of Psalm 24 is to believe in the King of glory, to believe in Jesus, that he came to your rescue, that he solved the problem of your inability to truly seek after God with a pure heart and with with rightly placed zeal, because you can't do that. So it should be a relief, humbling but a relief, But simply believe that he came to die. As Romans 10 says, believe that he's Lord and believe that he died for your sins and you'll be saved. That's that's all it is. It's about confession and belief because the word has come near to us. So you don't have to go on a pilgrimage, a spiritual journey, like many religions push towards. Do the theological math. You just receive, like we receive all foods as Christians, freely, we receive the gift of the gospel of Christ. We're his. He loves you so much that he went to death and, and back. And so Let me read from Colossians 3 to close here and we'll respond with a, with a final song. Colossians 3 is a command to the church. So consider this, uh, what God in part wants for you this week, a rhythm that he by his spirit will help you and, and talk to us in leadership. If this is too abstract, talk to us. This is what we want at Hiawatha. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gospel of Psalm 24. Uh, Thank you for its richness, for its complexity, and its simplicity. Thank you for telling us all we need to know, really, within this one psalm that you made all things good, all things fell away, no one can ascend to you, and so you descended to us and then reascended in glory, Jesus, that we might ascend to you if we have faith in you uh, to be back in relationship with you. So, God, I pray for rightly placed faith in the, the essence of that psalm, the gospel of that psalm for all of us, whether we're Christians, we think we know everything or not. Uh, God, help us to put fresh faith in the fact that you are the king of glory who loves us the only one of pure hands, the only one who truly sought after his father's will and the one who had true humility uh, and the one who's actually able then to destroy inside us all of the sins of rebellion and um, unwillingness to worship you and pride. Uh, God, forgive us, come rescue us and ascend for us. Help us to have a rhythm in our life of constantly saying to ourselves and to each other, who is this king of glory? That's right, it's Christ. And we remind and we celebrate. and We get in that rhythm of being joyful, as, as Colossians 3 says, thankers of you to each other, amongst each other, in word and deed, and alone as well. In Christ we pray all of this. Thanks again for who you are and what you've done. Amen.